0: So, man, it is perfect that we are talking about Jim Thorpe and football today when my local Cheney Cardinals just made national news for football this week at time of recording. I mean, I say national news like technically, you know, we get mentioned in the article referencing the longest high school winning streak in the nation getting snapped was snapped by my hometown team here. I coached a lot of those players in track, so that was very very neat to see i i almost never bothered going up to the games and i i did i was watching on youtube and then we were actually down so we were down 22 nothing to the team with the longest right. swing streak in the nation we get a touchdown right before half and i still felt like i need to go up there i need to go up there so even down 22 6 i'm like i'm walking up to, i'm going up to the game so i walked up there and then, yeah, slowly but surely, we just kept uh, nickel and diamond our way back into the game, forced overtime, and won in overtime uh, with a highlight run that's kind of been played over and over again on all the social medias because it's the game-winning overtime touchdown. <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny too. I was standing with a group of guys; none of us actually knew the high school overtime rules. Oh, is it not like sudden death? No, it's, is it, it. Are there it's different four downs from the ten going in, taking turns, more like college. Oh, okay. So Andale got it first and we held them and then we get the ball back. And of course, what's really funny is I was standing with a group of guys, and as soon as Andale went four and out, the guy, one of my friends was like, Oh, hey, let's, we got to run to the other side because we're basically standing like right at the 10 on the east side. And they're like, Oh, let's run around, you know, go behind the stadium and stand on the 10 on the west side as we get the ball. And about that time, I was kind of like slow to follow. I was like, it was kind of silly. I was like, oh, whatever. And then they start running back the other way. It's like, no, no, no. They're doing it from the same side. They're doing it from the same side. We missed the winning touchdown run because it was on first. T- it was on first down. It's like we're like behind the stadium, deciding right. where to stand as the crowd's going wild, and we missed the run. Oh my gosh! Uh, but again, I've seen it. I've seen it a million times uh, since then. And and uh, yeah, it's a uh, pretty pretty exciting, pretty exciting, and a uh, perfect segue into talking about Jim Thorpe. And the history of American football,
1: and was it the the kid who scored the winning touchdown? Yeah, didn't he also like block a pass on defense on the on the other oh. side, like at the beginning yeah. of the of
0: overtime? So the the fourth down play. So Andale is not that they're kind of the one trick pony, but their M O over this whole streak is they're just bigger at the point of attack, and they just averaged like eight yards a carry on the season. And they just ram it up the middle down your throat and you can't stop them because they're bigger and badder than you. And so they're not necessarily super innovative. Now, that said, we gave up a couple big pass plays to them probably because we were expecting a lot of that stuff. So on fourth and two, you kind of expect them just that it's the Seahawks, you know, should have given it to Marshawn in the Super Bowl kind of thing and just ram it up the middle. They kind of fake a run and go for the short pass. And, yes, both the same kid that scores the touchdown on the very next play is the one that knocks the pass down out of the air so it can't be completed. And then he gets the ball and runs a 10-yard run into the end zone on the first play to end the game uh, when we get the ball. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, very cool, very cool. And we'll see what happens going forward. And, again, (laughs) when this airs, the season will be long over. So, Right, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I pro- I'll, I'll probably even know when I'm editing this what uh, what has happened. I, so there you go. Instead of trying to do a bonus episode, it, it, right here I will insert how the season ended up for uh, the, the Genie Cardinals because by the time I get done editing this, the season will be over. Yes, we did it. We won. We won state. We actually won in a snowstorm in the state title game 34-7 after some narrow wins in the playoffs that included a last-second field goal and another comeback win from behind against Andale to win in the final. Anyway, yes, we're going to continue talking about football today, though, because the film (laughs) was Jim Thorpe All-American from, what, 1951, I believe, starring... Burt Lancaster as Jim Thorpe. So, of course, traditional 50s things. We can't find a Native American actor. We're just going to get uh, kind of olive-complected <laughs> uh, Burt Lancaster type. I don't <laughs> even know what his background is, actually, <laughs> ethnically speaking. Yeah, I don't but either. But decidedly not Native American. <laughs> of course, I say that. Man, is he a quarter native and I don't even know it? Yeah, I guess we'll look that up real quick.
1: Uh, let me look. I wonder if it'll even say...
0: Oh, it'll say, like, if he's, like, Italian or something like that. That's what I'm kind of looking like. If you if figure out his parents are, you know, immigrants from... He's, he's Irish. Okay. Irish descent.
1: Both of his parents were from Belfast, so... Oh, there you go.
0: So he's Northern Irish descent. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, his his parents are. He is just an Irish guy from New York, or
0: Irish-descended guy from New no, York. No, sorry, yeah. He's, he's American, yes, but his ancestry is more uh, Northern Ireland. Okay, okay. So, yeah, this this film is not widely seen. I wasn't super familiar with it, even though it's about an absolute sports icon and Jim Thorpe and stars, you know, legend Burt Lancaster. It's an NA slash 56 on Rotten Tomatoes. So the critics didn't even have enough critic scores to get uh, a rating. It's a 6.9 on IMDb, which is respectable enough that we decided to go ahead and give it a watch here. Uh, No Oscar nominations. It's not a good movie. It's... It actually the, the beginning i thought was kind of interesting like, the first first 15 minutes i'm like oh this is gonna be good and then it just kind of really goes nowhere and they couldn't figure it almost like to me felt like it couldn't figure out what story it wanted to tell like in trying to tell all of jim thorpe's story and ended up basically telling none of it right and as you're you'll get to i'm sure it looks like it made up a ton of stuff about his personal life and just butchered all of that
1: yeah as is the case with a lot of these movies we talk about the real life history is way more interesting than the movie and i don't understand why they didn't just and you don't even have to tell all of it because, honestly, this is... I would love to see, like, a Jim Thorpe miniseries because there is that much stuff to cover. Like, my notes is, like, four pages long. Oh, wow. Okay. Of of just tips. There's, there's a lot to talk about. But even if you just... I mean, you could focus on, like, just one aspect and make a really good movie with a solid story. But, yeah, it, this movie trying to tell his entire life story and also you know, make up stuff too. It, it's just kind of a it's kind of a train wreck.
0: So i uh, finish up a few more notes on kind of the the, the film and the background there, and then I'll let you kind of talk about Jim Thorpe for a while. <laughs> so what surprised me with this being, again, just not a very good movie is it's directed by Michael Curtis, who did Casablanca and Adventures of Robin Hood, like the famous yeah. one from the 30s, and Yankee Needle Dandy we talked about for, uh, last week because yeah, it stars James Cagney. And then he directs this and just... There's just nothing there. It's just kind of not soulless, but just kind of uninteresting and uninspired. And yeah. Uh, Lancaster, though, I've always kind of been, I don't know, it gets me intrigued by Burt Lancaster as an actor. Um, he just has great presence and this kind of, of course, the voice that he's kind of distinctive for isn't really in this. He kind of just is more neutral, I would say, sounding in this movie, but he's. Yeah. So I, I grew up knowing him as the old doctor in Field of Dreams, and just absolutely mm, loved okay. that character and that performance. Even even when I was young, like that was one of my favorite things. When I'm like twelve, is like Byrne Gaster in Field of Dreams it was just so cool. And then uh, he was nominated for Oscars four times. Uh, he won for Elmer Gantry, uh, which if, if you haven't seen, I do re- do recommend. He's and then his other nominations were for From Here to Eternity. The Birdman of Alcatraz and Atlantic City, the most iconic of which is probably from Here to Eternity, because even if you've never yeah. heard of Lancaster or Bert Lancaster and have never heard of From Here to Eternity, you've probably seen the scene of the couple like making out on the beach with the waves coming up to them. That's Bert Lancaster in From Here to Eternity, <laughs> so kind of an iconic shot. Yes,
1: yeah, and so that that beach. Uh, is on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. It's right next to the blowhole, which is a place where the the waves will come, like, crashing into the rocks, and there's, like, an eroded part from the lava flows where, like, when the waves crash into the rocks, it'll shoot water up out like a geyser. Gotcha. So it's perfectly cinematic, yeah. So right, well, right, if you basically down a cliff from the blowhole is that beach, and it's known as the From Here to Eternity Beach, and it is a very popular place for, like, wedding photos instagram photos oh, you know yeah yeah anniversary picture like it's always super crowded of people taking photos on a beach because it's very uh very iconic
0: and and it is like a really like naturally beautiful beach right there huh. well that's kind of crazy that it's still because it's you know it's now it's like a 70 year old best picture winner and it's still kind of that icon because it's not like a wizard of, Oz, well, wizard of Oz didn't win best picture uh gone with the wind it's like a gone with the wind casablanca that everyone like still knows is a household name and it's still kind of that icon of course i guess if you're going to hawaii and you kind of or Honestly, what happens nowadays with social media is people will have never heard of a thing. And I'm sure I'm guilty of this, too. People will have never heard of a thing. And then you get to a place and realize, oh, it's famous for this movie. Oh, never heard of that movie. But I'm going to click, click, click and hop in there, too, and take all the pictures, even though I never heard of it. right. Yeah. So the first thing that kind of is I'll kind of kick it over to you to talk about Jim Thorpe here as I was kind of going through my notes. And I kind of. To do even some of my research, I needed to do at least do a cursory glance at Jim Thorpe's background. And so the one thing I wanted to look at was like, oh, man, the film kind of implies that his one and only kid died during the Spanish flu epidemic. So I just kind of checked that little piece, and I'm like, oh, that's not true on so many levels. Right. And then it basically shattered, like, yeah. is anything in this movie true? So why don't you give us the rundown of uh, Jim Thorpe and kind of rip this movie to shreds? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so we we will get to that, Rich. Okay. But I I got to start back at the beginning. So Jim Thorpe was born probably on May 22nd, 1887. Um although no one knows for sure. He actually doesn't have a birth certificate. Huh. Just cuz Indian Territory and all that kind of stuff. Y- right, yeah. Yeah, it, it was the 1880s, it's Indian Territory, he doesn't have a birth certificate. He does have a baptism certificate because he was his parents were Catholic. Okay. The baptism certificate says May 22nd, but he said in an interview in 1943 that he was born on May 28th. Oh, which wouldn't work. Um, I think most people think he, it, it is the May 22nd date. But in any case, he was born in May in 1887. There's also some variation as t- in reports as to where he was born. But it's like between three tiny towns that are in Indian territory just east of present-day Oklahoma City. Okay. His parents were both mixed race. Um, his father was Irish and Sac and Fox Indian. So
0: Lancaster works if he's if he's part Irish. <laughs>
1: yeah, for you know one quarter, <laughs> <laughs> because his mom was French and Potawatomi. So since his father was Sac and Fox, he was raised Sac and Fox, like we see in the movie. His name, his native name, was Watohuck or Watohuck. I'm, I'm not sure. Probably for sure, butchering that. But it translates directly to path lit by great flash of lightning or shortened uh, bright path.
0: Hey, so they got that right in the film. Nice, nice.
1: They did get that right in the film. Yeah. Um, he had a twin brother Whoa. who died of pneumonia when he was nine years old. Nuh-uh. Yeah, which I think is wild. So, And they leave that out of the movie. <laughs> so Yeah, so they leave that out of the movie It's one of those things that we talk about in history where, you know, sometimes history just gets you. Like, this kid, he dies of pneumonia at nine years old, but clearly had the same... A twin brother had the same genetics as Jim Thorpe. Yeah. Could have also been a world-class athlete, but just happens to get pneumonia when he's nine and dies. Wow. There was two Jim Thorpes, essentially, (laughs) genetically. Right. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. So... He did run away from school a lot, so that is accurate. We see in the movie where he's running away from school, and because he was running away from school, his dad sent him to a boarding school in Lawrence, Kansas, uh-huh. called the Haskell Institute.
0: Oh, right. I would run against uh, guys from Haskell in like college and stuff occasionally. They'd be a lot of the same meets.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's like a college or a junior college now, something like that.
0: Yeah, it's it's a college in Lawrence, Kansas, that's uh, for natives. Yeah. Still yeah. Up to today. Yeah. Yep. So, but this was a I mean they had a grade school obviously back then cuz it's this was when he was just a kid. Well, okay, right right right. Now now I might just I don't know if it's just the college now or if they got all grades, but yeah.
1: I think back then it was basically like all the way it was right. a boarding school like all the way through. So like grade school, high school, K college.
0: through K through doctorate.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh he went there for a little bit. He became depressed after his mother died during uh childbirth. Also left out of the film with one of a another sibling right so he gets depressed leaves home goes and works on a ranch for a little bit comes back home in 1904 and then in 1907 is when he goes to carlisle so similar to the film it was at carlisle where he is noticed for his athleticism although in the film they show him getting noticed by pop warner in a foot race where he's like running in his street clothes and, like, beats everyone. Oh,
0: basically runs through track practice in close. street clothes.
1: Right. Runs through track practice in close, street clothes. Beats everyone in close. street clothes. The real story is similar, but instead of uh, foot race, it's high jump.
0: Which they saw is the second thing in the film. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So there were guys practicing uh, track you know, practicing high jump at track practice, he shows up in his street clothes and beats them all and jumps five feet, nine inches in street clothes, having never done high jump before in his life.
0: Right. And this is, this is well before the Fosbury flop. So he would have been like basically scissor kicking or barrel rolling onto like sand. Not yet. Yeah, so not don't, you know, don't picture like modern high jump, but yeah. more like what we see in the film with just kind of kicking over the bar. Right. <laughs> in the film, this is where it's like, Jim, come try this high jump. And it's like, okay, let me... Back up here and watch my stunt double do it because (laughs) it's like so obviously the cut to the stunt double and then the cut back to Burt Lancaster.
1: There are some atrocious like stunt double
0: cuts in this movie
1: (laughs) that are like super noticeable.
0: Lancaster running actually looked okay. Like it looked like that was him running, but uh, most of the time, but like the, the, the jumping, definitely not Lancaster. Yeah. Should also mention, I guess too, Lancaster was 38 years old when they filmed this movie. So the fact that so yeah. much of it focuses on him in college also feels kind of off. Like, he feel he feels too old when they show him a Carlisle, because he is 38 years old.
1: They all do. All of the actors that they show at the college look like they're well, in their mid-30s, early true, 40s. True. And they they probably are, but it's like, yeah, these are supposed to be 19-year-old kids. Right. Like, it's,
0: it's kind of silly. Of course, they also, though, have Lancaster playing him. It is tough when you're basically having him play from essentially 20 to 60. So he's going from college yeah. to then he's also going to be the same actor playing him when he's a washed up has-been. Basically, they cast him, though, right. as washed up has-been, and then had him go, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Almost like, honestly, so it hasn't come out yet on time of recording, but it's almost what it looks like and makes me nervous about the Napoleon movie coming out because Joaquin Phoenix is way too old to play Napoleon. As far as if you're going to do all of Napoleon. If you're going to do Waterloo Napoleon, yes, cast Joaquin Phoenix. If you're going to do young up-and-coming nobody napoleon he's way too old way too old well
1: to be fair though the makeup and visual effects have advanced to a point where i feel like now and, and sometimes it does look a little creepy like with uh what well, we just talked about off air earlier but the irishman uh robert de niro i'm just they,
0: thinking that that's trash
1: when they youngified him it looked horrible right exactly but I think I think it can be done well, especially if you're not because that in that movie they tra- they were going like it was like forty years they were trying to unage them. But I feel like if you're only going ten, fifteen, maybe twenty years, okay, and the, and the corrections aren't that crazy, it can look a lot better. So maybe it won't look that bad.
0: They, we've seen it in the trailers already, though. I guess sorry, sorry to talk about Napoleon here, which we will probably talk about later at some point. But like, I guess even in the trailer, they're showing like young, supposed to be like 19-year-old Napoleon, and it's like, you know, almost 50-year-old Joaquin Phoenix, and I'm like, what are we doing? Like, I guess, the way, I, yeah. I guess yeah, you could age him down, but to me, in the trailer, it looks like they didn't age him down. So, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Jim Thorpe. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he uh, he also,
1: this is kind of a, a, a just a minor side note here, but he, in the movie, we only see him do football and track, at college he oh I, I guess we see baseball's talked they mentioned him playing baseball yeah. they mentioned him playing baseball too but he also played lacrosse mm. and was a competitive ballroom dancer
0: what <laughs> and actually
1: yes and he actually won the 1912 intercollegiate ballroom dancing championship
0: that's crazy <laughs>
1: isn't that insane like this dude was doing so much stuff so just like we see in the movie, Pop Warner, um, who was the coach of Carlisle at the time, didn't want Thorpe to play football because he was afraid of him getting injured. And at the time, Thorpe was basically the entire track team.
0: Right. And was way smaller than they implied, right? When he first got there, like, I read, like, he was basically just 150 pounds when he first got there, and the coach didn't want him to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep.
1: Not a big guy. Yeah, there were meets where, where Jim, track meets where Thorpe would do basically a decathlon but not as a decathlon he would just do all the events right and win them all yeah because he was just the best at all of them right oh
0: well they show that in the film where they, they show up they show up with two guys to attract me and win it yes because they, yeah. they're, the, they're the distance guy and then jim wins everything else and he yeah. says yeah this is so and so he runs
1: the mile the two mile and up and he said and this is jim thorpe what does he do everything else <laughs> yeah <laughs> so they basically have their their distance runner who runs the mile, the two mile, and I think he said a three mile too. Okay, I, I don't know if I'm misremembering that or not. But anyways, does all the distance events, and then Jim Thorpe does every other event. Right, and then they
0: win the track meet, two guys versus the whole team,
1: and they win the track meet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like that? Did that really happen, or that kind of thing? Really, or that, that's not too far off of the truth, then, right? I don't know if that one specifically happened. I,
1: okay, so I didn't, I didn't see like any specific meets where that happened, but I did read in one uh, place where it said that there were meets where he was basically, they didn't say how much, but they said he was basically the entire team. Okay. So I think that what we see in the movie might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but he was doing multiple events. I mean, like, probably in the double digits of events
0: at these track you No, know, right. There was, there was no four-event limit. He would probably just literally go throw everything, go jump everything, go run all the races. Yeah. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Pop Warner did not want him playing football, but Thorpe convinced him to let him try out, just like, hey, let me let me try to run a couple plays past the defense at practice. Like they're not going to injure me. Right. But just to see just to see how good I am or just so I can show you how good I am. And he just blows past them like twice in a row. Two consecutive right. plays. Right. Because he might be the fastest guy on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let, let me let me play football. And Pop Warner's like, all right, you can play football. <laughs> so he was Carlisle's running back. He also played defense. He was a defensive back, and he was their
0: kicker and their punter. <laughs> right, but again, that was common back then. But yeah, it's still kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's it, so in modern times, we do have a lot more specificity in sports, right? And in like football, there's a lot more specificity by position. But it's just crazy that he was that he was doing also, and he was the best at
0: all of these. It wasn't oh, right. like he didn't it wasn't just filling in. He was like the best kicker in the country, the best running back in the country. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah So we see
1: in the movie They talk about the uh, the upset over Harvard That is based on reality In 1911, Carlisle upset Harvard 18-15 to 15, And Jim Thorpe scored all of their points Nice He scored a touchdown Which at the time was only worth 5 points He converted, kicked the extra point And then he kicked 4 field goals <laughs> So Jim Thorpe scored all, all 18 points For Carlisle over Harvard That's funny and this is, I wanted to take a just a, a they talk a little bit of it about the rules in the movie. So in 1911, when this happened, touchdowns were only worth five points. Field goals were worth three points. The field was actually 110 yards long, not 100 yards. Oh, huh. Kickoffs were from midfield. You had three downs to get a first down, not four like today, and a... Pass couldn't be caught beyond the goal line, so you couldn't pass for a touchdown. You had to pass and then run it in. You could pass
0: to the one-yard line, but then always had to run it in. Yeah, okay. Right, and you couldn't throw a pass more than 20 yards. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay.
1: So it was a lot more of a like a, a running-based sport right, right? than you would think of today where you have like long, bomb passes that was not only didn't happen, it was actually against the rules back then.
0: Gotcha. And they do kind of talk about a little bit of the... Yeah, they, they show up like the the field going from like a grid to the lines or something or was that uh, yeah 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 so he
1: played at the harvard game in 1911 in 1912 they had another big kind of upset um a 27 to 6 victory over army who at the time was another a big football school and i think they mentioned this in the movie or there's a similar situation i think it's a kick or a punt return that he has to return twice.
0: Yes, he returns the kick for a touchdown, they call it back on penalty, and then he
1: returns it again. Right, so that actually happened in real life. Yeah, that's crazy. He scored, and now I don't know if it was if it was a return, uh, but he ran a 92-yard touchdown run, they call it back for a penalty, and this is what makes me think it wasn't a kick return, because they called it back for a penalty, and then the next run is 97 yards, so it's exactly five yards, so like that would make sense if it was a five-yard penalty. So he he runs a 92-yard touchdown, they call it back for a penalty, he immediately turns around and runs 97 yards for the same touchdown. That's crazy. That was that was a cool moment in the movie. Yeah, a little uh, interesting like 6 degrees of separation here. In that game, he's playing against Army. On the other team, the Army team was Kansas Native, future Supreme Allied Commander and 34th President of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower was in that game? He was playing football against Jim Thorpe in that game.
0: Oh, that's that's so cool. That would've been a fun little cause if shooting fifty one wasn't Eisenhower president. Like you could have Yeah. They could've they could have made it hide a little thing. Yeah. Be like, oh you'll get him next time, Dwight, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: How cool would that have been?
0: Yeah, oh, man. That's crazy.
1: So uh he was first team All American uh in nineteen eleven and nineteen twelve for Carlisle. And actually in 1910 and 1911, he didn't compete in track at all because he was focusing so much on football. But then with the Olympics coming up in 1912, he did start training again in the spring of 1912. Basically right after football season ended, he was like, okay, I'm going to start training track again and go to go to the Olympics this year. And he did. So he had, he had not trained for two years. Oh, right. Or three years. Prior to hit start restarting his track training
0: for the Olympics. And just to insert it real quick, Eisenhower was actually not yet president in 51 because he was elected in 52. But y- yeah, he would have he been. You're right. He was still the Allied Commander. Everyone, I mean, he was still world famous. He just hadn't been elected yes. president yet when this movie came out. Right. But still something you could definitely have included. Yeah, that would have been really cool to see.
1: So, the 1912 Olympics, this is probably what Jim Thorpe
0: is most known for. Right, you see the picture of him wearing the U.S. Olympic track jersey with the seal on the front, and, like, it's very iconic, yeah. Yep,
1: yep. So, he competed in the pentathlon and the decathlon, which at
0: that Olympics were both brand new events. Only the fourth Olympics, though, so yes. (laughs) Or fifth.
1: No, the fifth the fifth Olympics, yeah fifth yeah because yeah, it's yeah, yeah. 90, 1896
0: that's how I, I was counting yeah ninety six zero four oh
1: four oh eight, 08 12. and this is 1912 yeah. yeah so i i wanted to give you a little quiz okay kind of
0: spring this on you
1: do you know the events for the pentathlon and the decathlon
0: um well i don't necessarily know what they were in 1912 i can probably do the uh i could do...
1: according to wikipedia it's the same as it is today so maybe it's not, I don't know.
0: Okay, so, min, but, so men's... men's. I'm going to start with the dec- decathlon. Oh, I think I know the pent as well. Okay. So let's see. So the denca- decathlon, uh, you got the... Again, today, you got the 110 hurdles, the 400, the 1500 are your three-track events. Uh, you throw the shot and the discus. I always forget. I'm going to come back to the javelin if I have an extra event here. Long jump, high jump, pole vault... One two three four five six seven eight. So yeah, it must be javelin, and and there's
1: one there's one more run that you're missing. Uh, oh, the hundred meter dash.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yep. Okay. The one. So it's the one hundred, the four hundred, the fifteen hundred, the one ten hurdles, long jump, high jump, pole vault, discus, javelin, shot put.
0: Yes, and then the pentathlon. I think is you keep the fifteen, you keep the high jump, you keep the long jump, you keep the one ten hurdles, and you keep the shot put. Uh,
1: this says that the well, at least. I don't know. Maybe it's changed since then, but the one that he competed in is the two hundred, the fifteen hundred, discus, javelin, and long jump. So no hurdles, no hurdles.
0: Okay, yeah. Again, so probably. So that's not an Olympic. They don't do the. They don't do the men's pentathlon anymore. So it's not. A, it's not a thing. Right. I think the only pentathlon around today is the women's indoor is pentathlon okay Um, we do a couple high school pentathlons in the spring if we can for our for at the high school level but there there is no olympic men's pentathlon anymore to my knowledge so uh, i was less certain on that yeah just as since you're talking about it did you did you actually see though there's also that's not to be confused with something called the quote modern pentathlon that was also at the 1912 olympics did you see that one Oh no, I didn't see that. So, so, so Thorpe didn't do it, obviously. But it they, they was called the modern pentathlon. I gu- guess the implication is that track and field is so ancient that that's like the Greek ancient, like that's the pentathlon. Mm. Versus the modern uh-huh. pentathlon was shooting, swimming, fencing, equestrian. I don't know exactly what, but something with the horses and and a cross country run. Huh. Okay. And they did that at the 1912 Olympics too, and one of the competitors there doing the quote modern pentathlon for the US George S Patton. Oh cool. So he was also competing at at this games doing the the modern pentathlon.
1: So he so he played football against Eisenhower and then is at the Olympics on an Olympic team that has Patton. George Patton on it. That's so
0: awesome. Yeah, and I'm sure we we will talk about Patton later in this series and I'm sure yeah. you'll you'll probably be the one doing the deep dive. <laughs> probably. Uh, and looking at more details on the 1912 Olympics with Patton, but I thought that was Fun to to mention. Anyway, so yeah, he he wins the Olympics. Yeah. So he, he wins both of those. Um, And actually, amazingly,
1: during the decathlon, his shoes went missing. Now, it's not known if it's by accident, if someone stole them. Oh. But they think it probably was because someone stole them because there were people that didn't like that he was native and on the Olympic team. Okay. Um, and keep in mind, this is at a time where natives were not even necessarily considered U.S. citizens. Right, right. So he's doing like a lot of this decathlon in borrowed shoe. He borrowed one shoe from a teammate and found another shoe. Pop Warner found another shoe in the trash. And one of the shoes was too big. So he had to wear like extra socks on that foot to make the shoe fit. That is insane. And he still wins the decathlon. Right. And actually, if you look at the picture of him, that famous picture of him at the Olympics in 1912, where he's standing there, you know, with his hands on his hips, he's got the seal. If you look at his feet... It's two different shoes and different socks.
0: Nuh-uh. That's crazy. Yeah. Of course, I think the, I mean, we kind of know it, and that's why we're talking about him here, but then I think the king of Sweden may even say it in the film that, like, this dude was the best athlete in the world.
1: So that is a, that is true, that it, that actually happened. And actually, there's a, in the decathlon, the person who wins the decathlon is considered, it's
0: like an unofficial title, the world's greatest athlete. True, and still to this day is kind of a thing that they'll say that, yeah.
1: That comes from the King of Sweden, Gustav V, telling Jim Thorpe, when he's giving him his medal, he said, you, sir, are the world's greatest athlete. Oh, so that's basically when that title kind of went to the decathlete. That's the origin of that title, world's greatest athlete, is Jim Thorpe is the first person to get it, and it's the King of Sweden tells him,
0: you're the greatest athlete. I pulled up the picture with the different shoes, and you can even see the extra socks oozing out of the one foot, like out of the one shoe. Yeah. What the heck? And he competed in
1: 10 events like that. And, actually, 15 events, plus he was an individual competitor in the high jump and the long jump.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So
1: he actually did high jump and long jump four times. Right. Because <laughs> he did it once individually.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And then, well, three times for each one. But, yeah, once individually and then uh, once for each in the right. pentathlon and the decathlon. And he got fourth in high jump and seventh in long jump. So think about – think about – how much of an achievement it is to make just to make it to the olympics in one event (laughs) right like just to go right like it would be a lifetime achievement to go to the olympics and get seventh and get seventh place in the long jump that would be a lifetime achievement you'd be like oh my god this guy's one of the greatest to ever do it right and that's like a footnote on his 1912 olympics
0: right and he did it in borrow borrowed trash shoes yeah (laughs) yeah, <laughs> his borrowed trash shoes and extra socks. <laughs> what? What? A, yeah, I, you could also look at the whole. And I haven't looked at his marks in these events. I'm guessing by today's standards, his marks aren't that crazy. But I, I, I'm a big advocate of you got to judge people by their time.
1: I'll I'll get to. I got some numbers later on. I'm okay. Go yeah. Over.
0: Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: Actually, you know what? That's it's actually a, a good time to to go over the, those numbers. So he he wins. He gets gold pentathlon and decathlon both. So I don't have I don't have stats for the those Olympics specifically, but in his obituary in the New York Times, they give a rundown of kind of PRs. I don't I don't know if these are PRs or just just good marks that he received sometime throughout his track career. Okay. But it said that he could run the one hundred and ten seconds, he could run the two twenty in twenty one point eight. He had a 51.8 a 157 880, a 435 mile, uh, 120 yard hurdles in 15 seconds, 220 hurdles in 24 seconds, 23.6 long jump, uh, 6.5 high jump, could pole vault 11 feet, shot put 47 feet 9 inches, 163 foot javelin. And a 136 foot
0: discus throw. So so yeah, by by today's standards, those are honestly pretty modest. Like, So I mean, to the general viewer, those are very impressive. But to say this is the greatest athlete in the world, those are actually pretty modest numbers. Right. But again, we're talking 100 years ago in borrowed shoes with little training. That's why you got to judge by the time. Like, yes, those are impressive marks. But they're not. I mean, those are basically, a, I would guarantee you, there are probably a dozen high school boys every year that can do that in the country today. So that's why it's good but it's not right elite elite by today's standards
1: but those high school boys they're they're not growing up in you no, know exactly. with the uh nutritional right. the nutritional history that he has and in the equipment that he's using and uh so the javelin that he threw in uh in the, the decathlon he had never thrown the javelin prior to 1912 oh right he right. started throwing javelin because that was an event that he knew he was going to have to do the Olympics and he had never, he just never done it before. And he's throwing 163 feet.
0: And the pole vault poles were not fiberglass. They're probably like metal or something. Like it's, it's, uh, oh, right. There's no spring. It's, yeah. So pole vault changed drastically. But yeah, that is, that is still all kinds of impressive. And, and to, to my whole point, you have to judge by the time. And he was so, exactly, so dominant at the time compared to everybody else. Right.
1: Yeah. And, The world almost had two of him. Oh
0: my gosh, right.
1: I mean, his brother died at age nine. Like, the world almost had two Jim Thorpes. That's
0: crazy. Yeah.
1: Insane. So, after the Olympics, in January of 1913, Thorpe actually has his medals and titles stripped from him.
0: Which they show in the film, yes.
1: Because the Amateur Athletic Union, the AAU, discovered that he played, I'm putting this in air quotes, professional baseball in nineteen oh nine and nineteen ten. Now, at the time, if you were in the Olympics, you couldn't be a professional athlete. That's has since changed, obviously, because like LeBron James right, right. is in the Olympics, you know, playing basketball. But at the time it was for amateurs only. So his quote unquote professional baseball career was almost exactly what we see in the movie. It was two summers, nineteen ten and nineteen or nineteen oh nine and nineteen ten. He played for A minor league team, he was receiving as little as two dollars per game. I mean, it was just enough to where he could basically afford to live throughout the summer and keep, you know, stay active, keep training. And this actually wasn't uncommon for college athletes to do. They'd go play baseball in the summer, but most of them just use an assumed name and then they Mm -hmm. wouldn't get caught. Because if you're if you're Bill and you go play as Bob, well there's no way to look him up, you know? And it's it's 1910. Right. No one's checking your your you know state issued driver's license or whatever. Like, hey, that guy Bob kind of looks like Bill the college kid. It's <laughs> like, well, you can't prove that it is because he says that he's a different person. Yep. But Jim Thorpe, he he didn't even realize that he was doing anything wrong because he was right. like, well, all my teammates do this. Like, I I didn't even know that it was a problem. And he's he's not making a ton of money. It's li- it's just to survive. Right. And a different sport than what he did the Olympics and a different sport. But the AAU, uh, they didn't really care, and they rescinded his amateur status retroactively, and the IOC was then forced to strip him of his medals and titles. But this is kind of like a blessing in disguise, because now that he's considered a professional athlete by the AAU, now he can go be a professional athlete. So this is when he starts his professional baseball and football career, both basically at the same time. Which, again, is mind blowing. Right. Like this would never happen today. Uh where you would have like
0: <laughs> imagine having a guy, right the Olympic the Catholic winner then goes plays professional baseball and basketball or football at the same time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Imagine seeing like Patrick Mahomes, like you go watch him play football and then in the spring he's, you know, pitching for the Royals. Like that's the kind of athleticism we're talking about here. So uh the first team that he joins is the uh the New York Giants, which is now the for baseball. Uh, n- now the Francisco, San Francisco Giants, yeah, yeah. which actually is funny. At the time, they had both. New York had both. They had a baseball team named the Giants and a football team right, named the Giants. Right. And Jim Thorpe played for both of them. <laughs> so he he, uh, he joins the New York Giants. Uh, they win the 1913 NLCS, but they lose the World Series that year to the White Sox. And then after that 1913 World Series, those two teams go on like a world tour and. They kind of like tour around. I don't know if they play exhibition games, but they're just kind of as the World Series champions, they go all around the world to show how cool baseball is. right? And because they have Jim Thorpe, who's this like massively famous, super successful Olympian and college football star and now is a baseball star, they bring him along, you know, go on this world tour to get, you know, a bigger audience. He meets the Pope, Pope Pius X Mm. on this world tour and King George V of England. Oh, nice. This guy might have met more like world leaders and famous people. Like he, he's like he's a Forrest Gump, jump.
0: except real.
1: <laughs> or yeah, only only actually existed. <laughs> he switches back and forth, plays for various professional football and baseball teams throughout the nineteen teens and twenties. Um, on the baseball side, he played for the New York Giants, uh, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Boston Braves. Football, he played for a team called the Canton Bulldogs the Cleveland Indians, the Oorang Indians, the Rock Island Independents, the New York Giants, which is the same franchise that is still the New York Giants today, the Tampa Cardinals, not to be confused with another team that played for the Chicago Cardinals, which is the franchise that is currently the Arizona Cardinals. (laughs) And actually, that's another one where that franchise actually moved to St. Louis and was the Cardinals at the same time that the baseball team was the Cardinals. Oh, right. And they just called them Instead of calling, the, there was the St. Louis Cardinals, and that was the baseball team. And instead of calling the other team, well, it's like in uh, in common parlance, they were just called the football Cardinals. Huh, that's funny. Oh, he uh, he played at a game in May second, nineteen seventeen, uh, when he played for the Reds against the Cubs. That was a double no hitter. Both teams had pitchers that did not allow a hit through nine innings. Oh, huh, is that like the only one? Net, it's never happened before. Yeah. It's never happened before or since. And it went into the tenth inning, and Jim Thorpe uh, batted in the winning run. Of
0: course, he did. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Two on, two on, two outs, and Jim Thorpe bats in the winning run to end this double no hitter. That is like another like massively famous old baseball game, and Jim Thorpe's there. <laughs> Crazy. At the same time, and details are more scarce for this, and he's not as well known for this. But he was also playing professional basketball this time. <laughs> what? He played, in the 1920s, he played on a traveling team from LaRue, Ohio called the World Famous Indians. How did he have time to do all this stuff? I have no idea. He
0: had to have just been constantly playing sports. He didn't have to practice because he was just practicing for, he was just playing another sport. His practice for the NFL in the offseason was playing in the nba i mean the leagues weren't necessarily called all that yet but yeah yeah
1: right he's just always in season he never has to like stay in shape because it's like oh what do you do is to stay in shape for football well i play professional basketball and baseball (laughs) it's just it's it's insane it's wild like the the more i i was already i i knew that he played baseball and football and that he was an olympic champion i didn't know about a lot of this other stuff and it's just it just never ceases to amaze me how insanely athletic this guy must have been. And it just makes it even more devastating with, spoiler alert, he basically dies in, like, poverty right at the end of his life. So, let's see. Oh, I'm going to do a little
0: uh, aside here to talk about his, uh, like, personal life. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious because what we said with the movie showing one kid who dies of the Spanish flu... And that didn't seem to be at all correct from what I glanced at.
1: Right. He did have, he was married three times. His first wife was Iva uh, Miller, who was his wife in the movie. Okay. They were married from 1913 to 1925. And she divorced him in 1925, citing abandonment, which just looking at his sports career, uh, yeah. He's
0: never home. Yeah.
1: I <laughs> totally buy that. Because, he, yeah, he was just, he could never have been around. He had to have constantly just been traveling and playing sports. Literally every day he was playing a game. <laughs> right, yeah. So, Jim Jr., Gail, Charlotte, and Grace were the four kids that he had with Iva Miller. Jim Jr. did die as a child, but oh. at age three. Not, like, grade school age like we see him in the movie. So but was
0: it Was it Spanish flu or anything? It just said infantile paralysis. Okay, so so Jim Jr. did die young, but he yeah. had lots more kids, and that and Jim Jr. was way younger when he died.
1: Right, um, and there was no, like, oh, I you know, this kid, I'm, like, want to basically raise him to be the next great, like, Jim Thorpe athlete. Like, he died at age three. There's no way he could have had... Maybe he had those aspirations for his kid, but it was not what we see in the movie, where he's, like, in grade school, and it's like, oh, you know... I, you know, kind of like bummed out that my kid isn't as great of an athlete as me. It, that right. is not
0: true. We get a little. I, I thought it was an interesting moment we get in the film that kind of gives you an idea of how Jim Thorpe was viewed at the time. He, his son in the film mentions getting into a fight because one of the kids at school said, "Your dad's not the best athlete ever," because Hercules right. was a better athlete. So, yeah, those are the kinds of comparisons that are maybe apt. Where you're talking about right. where, I mean, obviously Hercules is, is mythical, but like as far as like the doing everything, the the, the 12 was it the 12 labors of Hercules? Like that's the yeah. level of mystique that Jim Thorpe kind of had.
1: Yeah. So his, and I, I do want to take a, a quick little detour here to talk about his youngest daughter with Iva, Grace. So Grace Thorpe, pretty interesting in her own right. She grew up and actually served in World War II with the uh, Women's Army Corps and received a Bronze Star for uh, actions in New Guinea. And then after the war, came back and became a big-time native rights and environmentalism activist. Uh huh. And I don't know if you remember, but when when we talked about "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Yes. And you mentioned the Alcatraz occupation. Was she there? She was, like, one of the main, like, ringleaders for that group that o- occupied Alcatraz huh. in the name of uh, Native rights. Okay. Was Jim Thorpe's daughter. So I just thought that, that was, that was a, just an interesting little historical connection that I had to, had to bring up. Oh, for sure. So Jim Thorpe's second wife, uh, Frida Kirkpatrick, he was married to from 1926 to 1941. They had four more kids, Philip, William, Richard, and John. And then he got divorced from her in 1941, and then he married his third wife, Patricia Askew, in 1945, and they were married until his death in 1953. And we'll talk a little bit more about her later, because there's some stuff that comes up after his death with, like, estate and stuff. So after leaving sports, Jim Thorpe has a hard time finding work he was getting paid a decent wage to play these professional sports, but it not anything like what professional athletes get today. It was not enough to retire on. And so he basically had to keep working all the way up until he died. He was an extra in a bunch of different movies. Hmm. Um, He played himself in a 1932 movie called always kicking. He was also an uncredited extra in this movie that we just watched the Jim Thorpe movie. He's like one of the coaching assistants or something.
0: Which now that I kind of, after I read that, I was like, oh, because he's very distinctive looking and he would have been older. Yes. And so like, right. you kind of see that guy, I kind of, I think I noticed that character or that actor in the film, but it didn't, yeah. I didn't notice it was Jim Thorpe until they kind of said that. It was like, oh, that makes sense. That was that yeah. guy. I even kind of, he stood out.
1: I don't understand why he wouldn't get a credit for that. Why they would or why they wouldn't like.
0: Credits were weird back in the day. They, they you have a lot of people just weren't credited back in the day. Like you basically credited the main stars, and that was it. Like if you didn't, if you didn't talk, you weren't in the credits. Even if you had just a couple lines, you weren't in the credits. Like it was just a kind of a more. I yeah, guess. but
1: they they don't like draw attention to it or anything. I mean, they're they're making this movie about oh. Jim Thorpe, and it's I in see, 1951. He's still alive. Obviously, he's in the movie. He's still alive. <laughs> so it's like, why not? I got you. from a
0: marketing standpoint, why do you not? Yeah, right. That's a good point.
1: I don't know. Or just give him one line, like have Bert Lancaster walk by and have the actual jim thorpe oh jim thorpe you know you, you, well, hell of a game you play today or
0: something i don't know something yeah yeah
1: so uh he also worked as a bouncer for a little while he was a merchant marine for a little bit in world war ii he kind of struggled with alcoholism later on in his life which they do show in the film he ends up being hospitalized for lip cancer in 1950 Ugh. and then dies of heart failure in 1953 There was a big legal battle over his grave.
0: Oh, I heard about this. Okay, yeah.
1: So his family wanted him to be buried in Oklahoma. He's actually buried in a town called, in Pennsylvania, called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. So his third wife basically takes his remains and essentially sells them to this town. Um, It was like two towns. It was like East something and West something that were right next to each other in Pennsylvania. The two towns merge, become one town, rename themselves Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and he's buried there. And there's like a big monument, there's a couple statues of him. He never went to this town. He wasn't from there, never
0: played sports there. Carlisle is in Pennsylvania though, which is like somewhat of a connection. But yeah, pretty thin. Right,
1: but like this town specifically was basically just the town that his third wife could get money from. Right. Because they gave her a bunch of money to allow this to be the case. For the naming rights, essentially, yeah, yeah. It is actually, I mean, that is kind of slimy and gross, but... She was also probably desperate, yeah. Right, and the grave itself is, it's kind of neat, like they do have, he's buried there, but dirt over the grave they have from the Indian Territory, where he was born, Mm -hmm. and from the Olympic Stadium in Sweden,
0: where he won his gold medals. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: that is kind of cool.
0: But they did honor him, but just, it's just weird to be buried somewhere where you have no connection. Yeah,
1: right. And his family, uh, his his son, his youngest son, Jack, did try and get his body moved, but there was like a big legal battle. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court refused to hear the case, and essentially that kind of ended the the legal battle there. But he is still buried there in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. And then uh, the last thing that I have here is his reinstatement, his Olympics reinstatement, which is more recent than you might think. So based on the rules at the time, disqualification was only valid if it was if it took place less than 30 or within 30 days after the Olympics ended. So basically, if evidence came to light that you were not amateur or you cheated or whatever, and it was after 30 days, it's like, well, that's the statute of limitations, you know, too bad, so sad. You you are still the Olympic champion.
0: So even at the time in nineteen twelve, and they still booted him anyway?
1: Yes. So in nineteen eighty two, there was a an organization that basically got evidence to show that there was no evidence prior to that January nineteen thirteen there was a, a newspaper article that came out, it was like the first piece of evidence that the AAU used to take his amateur status away so that there was nothing prior to that January 1913 article that showed that he was, you know, technically not an amateur. And that and that was that's obviously later than 30 days after the summer olympics. Right. In 1912. So, in 1982, the IOC reinstated him, but they s- reinstated him as co-champion, not as sole champion. Yes. So they reinstated him as co-champion In the decathlon and the pentathlon, I think in the decathlon was with the guy from Sweden and the pentathlon was a guy from Norway, or maybe those are switched. Okay. But anyways, basically listed him as co-champion, not as sole champion, which is weird because the guys that actually competed in those events never considered themselves. Like they always said, no, I'd never, I didn't win. Jim Thorpe is the champion, even though the IOC like said that I am the winner. I don't buy it. And even after they reinstated it, it was like, no, like I'm not. I'm not the champion. Jim Thorpe is the champion. So they reinstated him as co-champion. His children were given commemorative medals at the t- at the ceremony. They couldn't give the kids the originals because the originals went to a museum and then got stolen. And to this day, no one knows where those medals are.
0: Ooh, what if I was like, I got them right here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so again, just another little interesting twist in the in the Jim Thorpe story. In July of 2020. The movie studio, Pictureworks Entertainment, lobbied to have the IOC reinstate Jim Thorpe as the sole winner and not just as the co-winner. And actually, that movie studio is making a movie called Bright Path about Jim Thorpe. It's in production right now, being produced by Angelina Jolie. Apparently, the guy, there's a guy from, one of the guys from Wind River, uh, like kind of a minor character, I forget the dude's name, is going to play Jim Thorpe. But so there is a movie in production right now that a couple of years ago lobbied to uh, have him reinstated as the sole winner. And as of last summer, July 2022, Jim Thorpe is considered by the IOC to be the sole champion of the pentathlon and the decathlon from the 1912 Summer Olympics. Okay,
0: it's way more recent than than I was, was thinking. I, yeah. I was thinking the 1982 thing fixed it. it. It was, uh, yeah, that was just making him co. Huh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then the last things I have my notes, I have the uh, track stats, which I already read. But also uh, I have just a a quick little thing about his baseball stats. So over the course of his baseball career, he scored 91 runs, had 82 RBIs and a 252 batting average and played in uh, 289 games.
0: Okay, so I I had several things to kind of go through, and we're but we're going to be kind of short on time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna punt my discussion of Pop Warner himself. I'm gonna put that on our side note on Patreon. So if you want to uh, hear more every week and get episodes early, you can go to Patreon.com/slash History and Film and subscribe over there to get early access and kind of extra bonus uh, stuff. Uh, but I do want to talk about here in the regular episode about some of the things that are more relevant to. Uh, American history and just kind of touched upon some of the things here. So first the Carlisle school itself that we see here. So I I made, I made a note when they showed the kind of the founding plaque or whatever in the film. And it said the name R H Pratt. And Mm -hmm. that is accurate. That is the guy who established uh, the Carlisle school. And it made me think of, we talked about Alexander Graham Bell and kind of his horrid, (laughs) view on how to treat the deaf even though he had loved ones his mother and his wife who were deaf so he meant well i guess is a way to say it similarly r.h pratt's heart was in the right place but his motto for the carlisle school was quote kill the indian save the man
1: oh i've heard that
0: Like that phrase before, I didn't know that that's what that was from. Yeah. So, but again, he meant so he was in a way an early equal rights advocate, but his approach was again, it's just so, it's just so bizarre. In the beginning, he meant well. So, in R.H. Pratt's view, Native Americans were equal to whites. Like, biologically and in their potential we just got to get rid of the savage ways that they've grown up with and put them in white society and make them quote normal
1: and technically that was like the progressive that was like the progressive forward-looking view at the time is oh they're not genetically inferior exactly and like basically animals they can be people just like us (laughs) if we teach them hence i'm gonna start a school (laughs) and everyone was like oh wow
0: Look at this guy. Look at this hippie over right. here. Look at this hippie. Look at this liberal hippie over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, if you think about it, though, it is kind of the opposite of maybe a eugenics more approach to that, like, certain groups are more better than others. Like, no, he believed natives were equal to whites biologically, but he saw their ways as, quote, backwards, and we needed to kill the Indian to save the man. So he meant well. It was just kind of, like you said, the liberal progressive view at the time is still kind of problematic by today's standards, so uh, but Pratt was uh, he was a Civil War vet, and after the Civil War, he was just one of a big advocate for helping the Native Americans that kind of got imprisoned after a lot of these. There was a lot of these Indian Wars we've talked about following the Civil War, and some of them would get imprisoned. Pratt was the guy kind of going and setting up schools where they were being held captive and stuff. He really wanted to educate them, and again, do everything he could to assimilate them into white society which again was his way of helping them. So he opened the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania in 1879. Uh, Actually, the school closed uh, as we entered World War I. Enrollment had kind of been dropping anyway. And then with World War I, the school ends up closing. The campus today is actually part of what is now the U.S. Army War College. But the the campus wasn't built for the Carlisle School in the first place. It actually goes back to 1757. This was like the Carlisle Barracks. Oh wow! Built, you know, pre-revolutionary war times, and then it got repurposed by the Department of the Interior for this Carlisle School, and then repurposed again uh, for the U.S. Army War College uh, there today. Another distinction that Pratt has, though, uh, he I'm trying to think how to say this the the first known use. ...of the word racism is credited to R.H. Pratt. What? Like, it's far as, like, calling it out as a bad thing. So, like, not that he was... Right. ...accused of racism, because obviously quite the opposite. He was basically... ...would be calling other people's out for what he called racism, and it wasn't actually a thing before mm. that, or, or that term wasn't used before right. Pratt. Or we yeah. don't have documented evidence of it being used. Kind of like with uh, Edison and the term bug for, like, a computer problem. right. You may not that he coined it, but the first known usage goes back to him. The first known usage of the word racism goes back to R.H. Pratt. So he definitely was huh. an, an early equal rights advocate. And it's just kind of interesting, I guess, how as a society our shift is focused to equality doesn't mean everybody is the same it means everybody has maybe equal opportunity and and, and that all ways of life are equally valid there's maybe a way to say it as long as you know there aren't moral issues i guess but like there's nothing wrong with natives to choose to live outside of quote-unquote white society versus back then even if you were on the native side you were trying to get them to join us not thinking like well why don't you go join them like what's the difference it's all arbitrary right (laughs) yeah anyway And then I kind of wanted to talk about – the last thing I'm going to talk about here on the episode before kicking it to Patreon here is I did want to talk about the history of sports in the United States because that's you know – we're talking about Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes of all time, possibly the greatest greatest athlete of all time if you judge him versus his time because I can't think of anybody else that that stands out to the level that Thorpe did. The most – actually the person that came up the most as you're talking was like a Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was legit like – in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, a pro bowl NFL player and an all-star game baseball player at the same time. Like, so good that someone like a Deion Sanders was also playing both at the same time. And everyone before Bo got hurt was like, Deion who now? Like, yeah, Bo was elite, elite, elite. But just kind of career cut short because of, cause of injury. But even Bo was not then also going to the Olympics in track at the same time.
1: Right, Yeah so one other thing i didn't have it in my notes but since you bring it up there was no one from jim thorpe on no one had played in major league baseball and gone to the olympics outside of when uh the few years where baseball has been an olympic sport like gone to the olympics in a different sport right until eddie alvarez what did he do he's a like a speed skater he went to sochi in 2014 and then he's a, and he's a professional baseball player. I don't
0: know who he plays for right now. Wait, a professional, professional baseball player skated at the Olympics? Yeah. I've heard that name. I didn't realize he was an Olympic skater.
1: Yeah, he plays for the Red Sox.
0: And he skated in the Olympics.
1: <laughs> yeah, he got, a, he got a silver medal in short track speed skating. In 2014, in the 5,000-meter relay.
0: I had no idea. Yep. So what about, though, like, uh, didn't Herschel Walker also do bobsledding in the Olympics? Would you count something like that? Um, or is that after Alvarez? No, it wouldn't have been because uh, he'd be younger. Or Alvarez would be younger.
1: Well, they, so th- this was specifically talking about uh, baseball. It's talking about Major League Baseball.
0: Okay, gotcha. Not a pro so athlete. So no one, do
1: it. No one yeah. from Jim Thorpe to Eddie—between Jim Thorpe and Eddie Alvarez over 100 years— Gotcha. There was someone who played Major League Baseball and was in the Olympics.
0: Okay, okay. So football yeah. is a different story. And okay, okay. Because I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure Herschel Walker was an Olympic bobsledder, uh, and as well as obviously an NFL player. Yeah. And you get stuff like there was. I remember. I don't. I, he never actually ended up competing, but there was like Robert Griffin the Third was like I think borderline Olympic good as a hurdler. Like could have had a chance to qualify for the Olympics in the hurdles and just kind of pursued NFL instead, and that yeah. got hurt but didn't actually ever compete in the Olympics. But yes, Thorpe is just kind of at a whole other level. So, yeah, sports in the United States, obviously a big part of American culture. I mean, even the I mean, obviously the rest of the world is kind of obsessed with their soccer and the whole world loves sports obviously, but I I feel like America is especially associated with uh with sports. We tend to do very well at the Olympics and sports at the international scene. We just definitely highly prize athletes and athletics uh in the US. But that wasn't always the case. So kind of pre-U.S., some of the first sports played in what is now the United States, lacrosse, has been played by Native Americans since before Europeans ever came over. If you count like, I mean, Hawaii is part of the U.S., but like historically back, you know, 900 years ago, South Pacific Islanders were surfing. And if you think about athletics and stuff uh, out that direction. yeah. Um, But when you get the British colonists coming over here, uh, the first sports kind of in the British colonies would have been Hunting, I mean, big game hunting for sport, you know, uh, but also horse racing uh, was kind of one of the first big things over here. And obviously, most people couldn't afford horses. It was kind of more the richer guys that would have the horses, but then the working man will still show up to the horse races and you get gambling, you know, even pre United States in the colonies as part of that. And so spectator sports were still already a thing, you know, in the 1700s watching these horse races back then. But the reason sports kind of stalled out in the United States, and actually the U.S. is kind of behind Europe, was uh, the Puritans frowned on sports. So sports and like, that kind of like athletic leisure activity was associated with the Catholics and the Anglican Church, who considered Sunday mm. after you go to church, you then have a day of play the rest of the time. And the Puritans yeah. are like, no, 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 we ain't doing that. So sports were not as common,
1: too lighthearted and fun and frolicky for them.
0: Yeah, no, right, no, <laughs> yeah, right. We we talked about the witch. Yeah, that those guys weren't playing soccer <laughs> after yeah. after church. So there was a shift of that sentiment. Uh, And of course, I mean, again, sports still kind of always exists throughout. throughout. But as far as becoming big in like the U.S. culture, uh, the shift was during the 19th century. And people kind of began to see sports more of as a way to, you know, build character and start to view sports in a positive light. You know, the YMCA is founded that tries to like promote the good athletic Christian boy. You know, it's what's the Young Men's Christian Association. Like it's trying to tie sports and and Christianity and, and all those kinds of things. But throughout, you had wrestling, boxing, foot racing as kind of sports in, you know, in the early days. And a lot of those were even big on slave plantations. So if you, have, if you had a massive plantation with a large slave population, the slaves were the ones playing sports like wrestling, boxing, and, and racing. Of course, those things existed outside other places as well. But yeah, basically until the Civil War, though, the biggest sport in the United States was horse racing, which is just kind of crazy to to think about.
1: Yeah, because now, I mean, we have, you know, there there is still horse racing, but it's right. not anywhere, anywhere close.
0: You're right, you think about baseball, even the idea of baseball as America's pastime, that's kind of an antiquated idea. It's like, well, no, before baseball, it was horse racing as, like, the biggest sports. And even something like boxing, you think of, like, boxing is called the sport of kings. I'm like, it was never yeah. that in the U.S. So, like, England saw boxing as the sport of kings, but it never really had that status in the United States in like the 1800s because it was seen as a lower class sport because of who was good at it. The best boxers were the Native Americans and the Irish, and so yeah, on the average American was like, oh, well, then that's for that's for them, not for not for uh, well to do people. So baseball was, and we'll probably we will probably talk more about baseball when we get to eight men out and the Black Sox scandal and all that down the line. But just kind of a, yeah. a a quick thing. So baseball kind of is developed in modern baseball in New York over the first after the 19th century, and it does become the first professional team sport in the U.S. Uh, the first professional baseball league in 1857. Kind of just has ties to to cricket and and the, the British stuff there. And so cricket was probably was more popular heading into the Civil War, uh, and then after the Civil War, everyone just kind of turned their attention more to baseball, and cricket kind of takes a a back seat. And then sports in the second half of the 19th century do start becoming very tied to, quote, manliness. And that, and I always had that in my mind as, like, sports taking the place of kind of a tribal warrior mentality. Like, you think a thousand years ago, you're raising all the boys to be able to, to like, physically fight in war. And then the sports right. kind of filled that gap. But I was reading an old, and and it's not, not that that's untrue, but... I was reading an old Sports Illustrated article talking about uh-huh. specifically this history of sports in the United States, and they talked about, no, sports and the pursuit of sports took the place of the frontier, and so basically, mm. it times out, once we kind of stop expanding west, and the idea is that young yeah. men need to go out and find the roots out west, once that's already kind of filled, what do we do instead? Oh, I guess I'll become an athlete, and so yeah. that it kind of times out there that the boom of sports coincides with the end of the frontier. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of crazy. I never, I never thought about that connection. And obviously, there's always overlap there because nothing, yeah, there's always overlap. History is complicated, as we always say. <laughs> and then just in general, we forget about the massive shift in society from 1875 to 1900. Before 1875, basically, the height of technology is trains and the telegraph. And then by 1900, you have lights and telephones. And then just a few years, you're getting cars and airplanes and, like, it's a massive, massive shift. And in the the beginning of the 20th
1: century, it also becomes way easier to follow sports live on the radio. Well, right, right. And I'm sure that had to have propelled. Because, I mean, think about, like, if you don't go watch, you know, Jim Thorpe play football against harvard in 1911 you have to go to the game maybe you could read about it in the newspaper the next day but to be able to listen to it live on the radio it's like it just makes this sports all sports way more accessible
0: no right you basically just get this it's it's uh the, the same sports illustrated article mentions the spectator boom and that yeah sports become more and more popular it's the snowball effect essentially like the more accessible yeah. they become the more popular they become, the more popular they become, the more accessible they become. I mean, little things too. Yeah. Like you got, I mean, with uh, mass production and the industrial revolution, you can now mass produce sporting equipment, and like, oh right, yeah, these things just become way, way more popular. The, one little thing I always thought was funny that again, just kind of perfectly encapsulates this kind of marriage of the mo- entering the modern age as we get into the 20th century. There was the the story of the as film was new two rich guys bet $25,000 on whether or not all four of a horse's hooves are off the ground when it's at full gallop or not. Mm. But you couldn't tell because you needed a, a camera that could actually capture it and you can go back and look at it frame by frame. And so, yeah, they bet $25,000 and uh, obviously yeah. a horse does have all four hooves off the ground during its uh, gallop. And yeah, the, the rise of bicycles, everyone's active there and you know, bicycle racing, like you just it's yeah, just basically from 1875 to 1900 was kind of this massive sports boom, and everyone just kind of started playing and getting interested in sports across the whole country. And then you know 20th century getting to car racing and all those kinds of things too. So yeah, and then we're and then it just kind of doesn't evolves and sports continue as as what we know know today. It is always kind of interesting just how those things evolve. Obviously, I coach at the high school level, and you know, big difference between. My understanding is Europe and the United States is so American high schools. Sports are very much part of American high schools. Like, again, that's my job. But yeah. in Europe, it's more of a side thing. You go to school and then sports are external to your school and they just have club sports. And you don't actually have school programs in Europe. Oh,
1: so like your school wouldn't necessarily have like a team for your sport. You would It would just be a club like you and... Maybe kids from a few other schools, right? Exactly. Huh, yeah, okay. it's basically
0: all, and we do have club sports in the United States. But my understanding is in Europe, it's almost exclusively the club sports, and you just can, the co- huh. the schools aren't hiring the coaches. The clubs, you just kind of independently, and the people join the clubs. Yeah. Which again, so it's even the term say soccer that you know the Brits don't like us using. It's actually a British term because it's it's, right. it's club soccer, associ- or sorry, or it's club football, association football soch evolved into soccer right it's short for association yeah i mean that's kind of a it sounds like a stretch but that is where the where the terms comes from there okay i think that's probably all we had time to mention here we're kind of running running long oh oh the one thing actually one other note i thought this was crazy because i was like what there's no way they make a big point when pop warner at the end of the film is trying to Get Jim back on his feet and talk about how hey you're you're not it's not just about you you're also representing Native Americans in this country and all those kinds of things yeah and they go see he invites uh, Jim to the 1932 Olympics in LA to go with him gives him a ticket and everything yeah um, and in the film like Jim's kind of mad and drunk and tears up the ticket but then we see him go to the games uh, with the ticket taped back together he's gonna go hang out with Pop again uh, at the Olympics and the guy doing the opening ceremony at the Olympics is Charles Curtis, and and Pop is like, yep, Native American Charles Curtis. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I guess I thought Kamala Harris was the first non-white male vice president of the United States. And that's apparently not the case. Oh,
1: no. It, that, that, that guy's from Kansas.
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I guess, did you, did you know that she wasn't the first non-white VP?
1: Yeah, she's the first black one, but she's not the first non-white one. And actually... Uh, I didn't know that. So... And he's from Kansas. For Kansas Day on the History and Film Instagram.
0: Oh, did you talk about it before? <laughs>
1: it was a couple of years ago on Kansas Day. One of our Kansas Day posts, I, you know, had famous Kansans. And now I'm going to scroll back and see if I can find it. Because I, I included him on there.
0: Anyway, yeah, so I was kind of blo- I was kind of blown away. And I, I guess, are those the only two? Is there other non-white VPs in U.S. history? Anyway, so yes, Charles Curtis from Kansas was the vice president in 1932 and he's half native american
1: yep he's a member of the kaw nation first native american to be elected vice president in 1929
0: and he's from topeka that's crazy that's crazy yeah i feel like a bad kansas and a bad history person (laughs) 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 or bad kansas so yes we will continue our conversation i'm going to talk about pop warner and a few other things over on patreon next time on the show here we are now as we get we talk about the 1912 olympics and the, and the rest of jim thorpe's career we're gonna get into the u.s side of world war one with another true story and the film sergeant york